Welcome to Black Love Now. I'm your host, Scarlett Williski. Black Love Now is a podcast accompaniment to the forthcoming exhibition at Nicole Longnecker Gallery in Houston, Texas. Here, I will interview artists asking about their body of work, professional practice, and their creative process. My curatorial approach prioritizes contemporary African-American artists living and working in Texas. Black Love Now is brought to you by The Scarlet Market. The Scarlet Market is an online resource that provides private sale and post-sale fine art services. An art collection is only as strong as the services that support it. Insurance, storage, installation, conservation, framing, and so much more. To learn more about these services, please visit our website at scarletmarket.com. That's scarlet with two T's, market.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Uh, welcome to Black Love Now. Today, we are having an interview and a lovely conversation with Jamie Robertson. I love her work to pieces, and you will see why here very, very shortly. Um, so without further ado, let's uh, jump into our conversations with Jamie. Hi, Jamie. Welcome. Hi, Scarlett. Thank you for having me. Oh, so happy. Yes, absolutely. So happy that you're here with us. Um, so let's just dig into our first question. And it's really basic. What do you do? And why do you do it? So I am a visual artist and educator based out of Houston, Texas. Um, uh, as an educator, I, I teach at the college level, which has been really exciting. Um, as, as an artist, I work primarily in photography and video, so like lens-based medias. Um, And my work conceptually deals a lot with African-American history and the African diaspora. Um, I'm really interested in those like cross-cultural connections between Black people. Um, You know, anything that could like work as I guess, <laughs> propaganda against diaspora wars is I is is Wait, diaspora in. wars. Let's talk about that. <laughs> I, I, tell me more. <laughs> well, you know, like, there's always that kind of like um, infighting back and forth. I see it a lot on social media. I don't see it so much in person, which I think you know also speaks volumes about social media in itself and how like it can kind of create these little like silos and bubbles and like people just spewing their random thoughts. But, you know, there's always these kinds of conflicts between like African-Americans from the, who are, you know, black people descendant from the black people in, who were enslaved in the United States versus yes. black people from the Caribbean versus black people from Latin America versus black people from the actual continent versus black people who live in the UK. Like, you know, like all of that kind of um, like infighting, like, you know, sometimes it's cute. Like there'll be things like people fighting over who had, who makes the best like oxtail recipe, like, or like, like, Oh, well we don't do it like that. And, you know, we're supposed to braise it and, you know, all that kind of thing. You know, like sometimes that kind of stuff is cute. Um, 
<laughs> but I do think sometimes people like get really upset that people aren't doing things the way that they do it in their culture. And I think what people forget is that Black culture is not a monolith that is very diverse. Um, and there's a lot of common threads throughout. It's just, you know, our environments have informed how our culture has adapted to, you know, where we where we are, right? Like, you Absolutely. just kind of adapt to, you know, us living in the United States, we're kind of, we're kind of cut off from, you know, I don't know, I I'm, I'm, guess I'm thinking about like, I don't know, like maybe certain food traditions, right? Like if you live in the Midwest and you're an African descendant person and you have ancestry that maybe is more coastal, like there's certain, I don't know, like you just kind of make do. Like uh, like dry rub versus like barbecue sauce, like yeah, <laughs> yeah, like you know, yeah. you're just, you know like what your environment is going to inform, like what is openly available to you is going to inform how your how culture of evolves. And I feel like I wish I just want more people to be aware of that when we're yes. interacting with each other. Um, but for the most part, my own work, I I'm still like in a place of diving into my own personal. Um, genealogy and looking at my family history and relationship to land. Um, yes. My family's from East Texas. Um, they're from a small town called Center. Well, actually, they're not just from Center. They're, it's better to say they're from the county, um, Leon County. And so that is for people who are maybe familiar with the state of Texas. Um, it is halfway between Dallas and um, Houston. And it's about like two and a half hours outside of Houston. And it's like going north, of course, Dallas is north of Houston. Um, and so like my family is from that county. My grandmother is from Jewett. My grandfather is from Centerville. My mom was born in Centerville, grew up there. Um, my great grandfather is from Hopewell, like all of these different places within within the county. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I grew up going there a lot. Like I feel like I was bou- I was always bouncing in between three houses yeah. as a child. Um, cause my mom, I, my mom was a single mom and, and worked a lot. So I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and my grandparents would go to Centerville like every weekend because it's, you know, it's my grandfather's home, like where he grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we would go and like, he would take care of the cows and we'd, in the summers we'd be up there. Like, I feel like we'd be there up the, there like longer, like for weeks at a time, because mm-hmm. he, he'd have a garden. Because I'm trying to remember, like even just the other day, I was like, he grew a garden in East Texas in the heat, yes. and like it was like out in the middle of a field, and there was yes. no like. I was like, how did how was he? I had the I asked. I remember I think I asked my grandma. I was like, how was he watering the garden? Because there was no like irrigation system. He didn't install one of those like for it. Um, and she was like, oh, we just got a really long water hose and c- kept connecting it. And <laughs> <laughs> so we reached into the garden to water it. Um, but it's it's definitely a part of my um, identity as, as yes. a Black person from Texas. Um, you, I, you know, there's a lot of Black people from Texas, I think, who really relate to that growing up in the city, but then also going to the country with your grandparents or family for, you know, and not just for like family reunions and things, but just like, just because we have this place, we own this land and it's a place of like retreat or solace for us to get away from the city. It was also like a really safe place too. And and because where we lived in the city, 
um, like on the northeast side. It wasn't there. Like there's no sidewalks for kids to play on. Right. There. It's right. more. Uh, I guess you would say I've heard people say it's like more industrial. It's working class. There's like these deep, you know, those deep ditches that, I, you know, a car come by, hit you, you fall in a ditch, nobody would know. Right. Kind of, you know, like, yes. it's not like the most ideal place for children to be playing, like, out. Right. Like, maybe in the front yard, maybe, but then it's like, oh, people are driving by, like, maybe someone will snatch you, kind of thing. So, yes. you know, I've, my I've friend, been threatened to be snatched many a times. So. Really? <laughs> oh, my gosh. See, you know, like stuff like that. Like it's not always the safest for little kids to play outside. Right. Um, and that's just like, you know, that's not even getting into like the environmental component of like what's in the air that you're breathing. Wow. That is so true. That is so, oh my gosh, I'm sorry to interrupt in that way. But like, I just remember because I, I grew up in Southwest Houston. So mm-hmm. like I, when people ask me, oh, well, what part of Houston did you grow up in? I say South Park, but it's actually further west or actually further east of South Park. Mm-hmm. So like closer to like the Hobby Airport area in Houston. Ah, okay. Oh, and so yeah. it's very close to like uh, Lawndale, uh, Petrochemical. So I grew up smelling of that. Like yeah. uh, it was kind of like secondhand smoke at my house. Like my dad mm-hmm. used to work there. And so he would come home and like the big blue long Nomax, they call them Nomax. And he, my mom would not let him bring it into the house. Like he had to leave it. He'd have to take off his Nomax in the garage and leave it outside and she would wash it. But it wasn't allowed to like be in the house unless it was clean. See, your um, mom is smart. Environmental things, yes. <laughs> your mom is smart because that was like before. Because you see all those like kind of like mesothelioma commercials where yes, like the wives yes. are like, I was washing my husband's clothes and I didn't know that I was getting this like, oh wow, getting in this stuff too. And so like your mom, that was smart on her her part, like to leave, like you cannot come in this house. You <laughs> went <laughs> <laughs> around all those chemicals and stuff. Like no, absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. I love that we were able to touch on the environmental factor and because <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't part of my question, <laughs> my line of questions, but it's absolutely necessary um, because we, you know, we grew up like smelling the smell and then we didn't go out to East Texas because I, I too have family in East Texas, um, somewhere in between um, Houston and Dallas. But we were on the 59 side. Mm. Um, I think, are you closer to the 45, uh, I-45 freeway? Yes, going it's north right of, off 45. Okay. okay. So we're, we are on the 59, I-59 or 69 now, um, <laughs> going, going north. So we're, we're in Henderson and mm. Tyler and Kilgore area. So okay. We're, we're kind of familiar, but just a little bit of a ways off. But that fresh air smell, we go out to the acreage and like you're in the country. And I was actually looking at our property uh, this morning um, online because I just haven't been there in a number of years. And it just like that smell, like the fresh air smell. It's like, oh, my God, I'm going to have a headache. (laughs) Like like I'm not used to clean air. Like Like it's too fresh. (laughs) It's so weird. But yes. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. And, and you, you also answered um, one, of, one of my questions, which is how does love inform your practice, your artistic mm. practice? And I think you were in the beginnings of answering that by like 
talking about the three homes that you visit mm. whenever you go out and each person's home you go to, you clearly love or have an affinity for. So if you could uh, talk a little bit more about, um, about those people, that would be, that would be lovely. Yeah. And, and so, um, like I was saying, growing up, I was always like bouncing between three different houses, my mom's house, my grandparents' house and the house in Centerville. Um, and you know, like, it's such an, I don't know, like, it's such a interesting thing, like, this kind of, like, shuttling a kid (laughs) around for for years, like, this was going on for years, like, um, I mean, there was a point where me and my mom did live with my grandparents very early on, Um, and so, you know, then it's just, like, shuttling between two houses, really, Mm -hmm. like, going, living in, um, off Homestead, and then going to Centerville at times, um, but even in Centerville, like we, you know, we're going and staying in the house that my grandfather grew up in. We're actually, is that the house he grew up? Uh, no, I had to think about it because there yeah. wasn't, pre- there was a previous house before um, that burnt down. And I think it was when my grandfather was a little boy uh, or maybe a little, he may have been a teenager at the time. Mm. Um, and it, it burnt down simply because like they were doing something where they were like burning trash, which, which is a very common thing in, in yes. the country. There is no like sanitation services. Yes. Um, so people have to burn their trash and they left it burning or it was like smoking, like, you know, like it kind of looked like it was going to be okay, yeah. but a wind yeah. came and blew it and blew it into the house and the original house. Oh, burned. Wow. So, um, my grandfather, when he came back from service in Korea, him and his first cousin, they built a pair of matching houses for their moms. Oh, um, wow. Their moms were sisters, so they and they lived on the same like plot of land together. Um, so they came back, they built these little matching houses with their uncle, um, and that is the house is still there. The house is like it's maybe 67, 68 mm-hmm. years old. Um, wow. But I just, I have so much, I originally started um, photographing it because I had a lot of anxiety about the future of it and what was going to happen to this house. I have so many memories that are just like filled with like love and um, just joy being in the house, watching, you know, shelling peas with my grandma, even though like I would try and get out of it all the time, but still the memories. Yes, <laughs> the memories. yes. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, my cum shell pee is like, ugh. Okay, I have to ask. I have to interject. Yes. Can I get a bag of purple hole peas? That's what I need in my life right now. Um, And there's no farmer's market in Houston that has any. And serious, really? I'm in dire straits over here. Like, Like, I need to go to my grandpa's house. I remember a man up the road used to have purple hole peas. My dad used to grow them in the backyard here in Houston when we lived, you know, when we lived in the South side mm-hmm. and my mom took a weed eater to the purple hole peas. Cause she said oh, she wasn't no. shucking anymore. <laughs> she wasn't shucking anymore. So I'm like, oh, I need that. I need that in my life. I need some purple hole peas. You know, you're the, the second person. Them. You're the second person I've heard talk about purple hole peas i was at kroger's and there was these women they were standing there 
And like one of them was on the phone and they were talking about like they were trying to, I guess, looking for purple hole peas at Kroger's, which I don't think I've ever seen them there. I think every now and then you might find like a bag of purple hole peas there. Maybe even H-E-B might, might. It's like very rare. But like you're the second person. (laughs) I've never seen them in the store. I don't think I, I mean, maybe back in the day when I was like, you know, maybe Fiesta, but. Fiesta, it might be a good place to, well, and, I don't know. What is that place? Remember Caninos? Have oh, you ever, did you yeah. ever shop at Caninos? Yes. So, I mean, now it looks so different. <laughs> when you go to Caninos, you're like, oh, it's like this, this interesting industrial looking uh, yeah. outdoor farmer's market. But I really, I have so many memories of being in Caninos and like, Shopping fresh produce Ugh, and like that knows. funny looking orange space that was there. <laughs> like that is like real Houston, like deep Houston. <laughs> That's a deep cut. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I remember my mom buying purple hole peas from Caninos. They, I mean, I know like the original owner, I think he, he got, I think he sold it to someone else. They kept the name, mm-hmm. right? If I'm not mistaken, but I don't think they've opened that main grocery part back up yet like all of the people who are like vendors in the back they've given them like really nice spaces which is cool um and it's also like well it was shaded before but it's like it's like more it looks more uniform now yeah um like a like it's like a you know it's not like they in the past where i think they just told them you come bring your own stuff Set up your own, like, set up your own table, your own table, whatever. You know, now they actually give them, like, spaces to to sell produce. Um, But I I don't know anyone growing them right now. I don't have, um, no one that I know has a garden right now. I have a garden, but I'm I'm only growing, like, melons right now. And it's, it's a very, like, um, it's a very much a test of patience. growing them because it's it's you know i have um some moon and star watermelon seeds that are doing really really well the there's flowers there's vines i have yet to see a little baby melon so i think i won't have watermelons until september to be honest like the way the rate it's going but i think it'll be fine because they you know they like a lot of heat and it's been it's been very very hot so i'm sure sooner or later but no purple hole peas i don't know oh, uh, no. you might have to try you might have to try caninos and see like if maybe some one of the vendors has has them i don't know yeah. that's a or you know where maybe like food town or, oh i hadn't thought about them that has not crossed my mind maybe jovi's smart shop okay my that's- mom goes to Jovi's. I've never been to Jovi's. I'm like, no, that's not really. I'm not going to Jovi's. It's a little bit too far for me to drive. But uh, it's not. If it's not, it's not really that bad. It's just a little slightly inconvenient. But <laughs> it's not inconvenient for purple hole peas. So I'm, I'll be going over there. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. It's, I it's necessary. It's a necessary part of life, people. If you don't know what we're talking about, I'm so sorry. You need to get some of these in your life. I need to call my grandpa. That's what I need to call. Like, it might even be worth just, like, a two and a half hour drive to go, first of all, go see my grandpa at his house instead of him coming down to see me. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, it's like, hey, any neighbors out there? Any purple whole peas? Anybody's anybody's growing right now this season? I remember it being always very hot and them being in season, like being ready to mm-hmm. eat at this time of the year. And so. you know, peas, I think they don't take that long to grow. Like they, you just got to make sure you have a good like trellis or something for them to grow up on. Especially, yes. well, there's some that don't vine. Um, but I'm that I'm getting I'm like getting into the like farmer's almanac now. That's okay. That's all right. This part this part of the land is relevant conversation. Um, you know, I have a friend. She was like, "You're gonna find some way to bring gardening into your practice." She was like, "I just know it. Oh. I just know it." As she, I was like, "Really?" I was like, "I don't know where, where or how that's gonna happen, but." I'm not, I'm definitely not opposed to it. I just don't know what that's going to look like. Look, it's a part of memory. It's mm-hmm. a part of what we do with the land. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's so natural to just flow into, oh, food and what we, what we've been yeah. eating. Um, yeah. Uh, have you seen the documentary High on the Hog for yes. on Netflix? Yes. Isn't it lovely? It's yes. one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And I just haven't seen anyone talk about black food the way that they I mean he's a scholar so he's he's obsessed with it and it's right. it's wonderful you're like yeah I'm I'm here for it like we I needed more episodes it was yes. only four and I get like you know COVID kind of maybe shut yeah. down some of their production but they definitely need more episodes so four was not enough but I think the four that they had had really good range I was oh, really yes. happy to see Texas in Juneteenth I loved it the final episode I loved um, it. I didn't know Michael Twitty was at uh, Williamsburg in Williamsburg, Virginia. If I would have known that, I would have hit him up while I was up there because I, <laughs> I hated Williamsburg. I was like, this is awful. Like, I don't want to be here. Like, this feels sad. And I feel my ancestors' souls. I got to get out of here. Like, <laughs> like we're just driving casually by um, in, you know, our enslaved people's uh, grave sites like un- like you-, you can tell that they're like you know they're they're not documented so mm-hmm. but they're they're there and they're people you know you're driving and you know my professor's pointing oh this is this is a a, a grave site and you're like there's no headstones yeah and you know not I not to cut you off no uh, no you're great um the the cemeteries that are that my family is buried in in Leon County like of course is segregation in all things, even death, there's segregation. Mm. Um, and so you have the black cemetery that where my family is, is buried. And as well, there's a couple of them throughout the county, but there's some where like, it's literally just a rock there. Wow, and somebody, yeah. You know, somebody brought some flowers or like, you could see like those artificial flowers that they'll yeah. stick down next to the rock. And like, you, we don't know, like, you don't know who's there. I mean, I'm sure the person and like the flowers look sun bleached, so it's probably they've been there a while. Right. Um, but it's it's ha- it happens a lot. Like there's so many um, black cemeteries that are you know kind of lost and overgrown or uncared for. Yes. Um, but I'm really I'm really glad and very fortunate that the ones that a lot of my family members are buried in are are pretty well kept. The, especially the one in Hopewell, because it's right next to the church. And so, like, 
you know, you go to church in Hopewell, you can't help but to see that the cemetery maybe needs to, the grass needs to be cut or even like just to go and visit after church service to go over and see, you know, go to your grandfather's grave, your great grandparents. Um, It was, I mean, the first time I've been to that cemetery multiple times, but not with the intention of like actually looking at who was there. It was more, it was always for a funeral. Like someone okay. burying someone, um, but the Hopewell Cemetery, I went and I just walked through to see all these headstones with like my family's surname on it, and to see like also there's like these really big one for like one like, I guess like the main like the main patriarch of our family, um, on on that particular side, it's I don't know like it it's it felt really special to be mm-hmm. there in that place. Like I didn't feel, I didn't feel, I don't know. We went kind of close to sun sunset, which, you know, that's usually the time when like all the animals start to come out. And so you don't really want to be out right. there um, when the wild hogs come out. Cause they'll gore you and won't think twice about it. Yes. It's not like, it's not like, Oh, cute little pig. No, no. It's, <laughs> you need to jump all. on the back of somebody's pickup truck right now exactly. coming fast <laughs> yes exactly um, but luckily i think i think because maybe they keep it like well gar like the grass cut and mowed and whatever like maybe it deters them i don't know but yeah gladly hope um oh, i'm tripping over my words but no, hopefully fine. i didn't see any but just the experience of walking through the cemetery and seeing all these people's headstones and knowing like from doing the genealogical research and knowing mm-hmm. a little bit about each person, it was really, it was really special to me. And I think if you're someone who is doing like your own like, family genealogy, the cemetery is the main place yes. you need to be. Yes. Um, Cause everything's there. And like those headstones tell so much, especially when, you know, you start running into symbols and things mm-hmm. on the headstones, like there are a lot of like Freemasons on okay on on wow. some on the some of the headstones and different like um, heroines of Jericho and like all Order of the Eastern Star, all those like kind of church secret societies, which yes, you know, secret societies of course have been in African culture for like for eons, and so of course when you come to the U.S you adopt it in some other kind of new way. So, you know, I, I even like my grandma told me randomly years ago, she was like, oh yeah, I'm in, I'm in the Eastern star. I was like, what? Excuse what? me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, or, you know, I, and I was like, really? She was like, yeah. She was like, I joined when I was like younger though. I was like, oh, so I mean, That's you know, so like, cool. I know. So that, you know, there's all those kinds of, um, sorority fraternity kind of secrets well they're i feel like they're more secret societies because they don't tell you you know what they do or like they're part of the church but they don't really right they're not they're not supposed to tell you like there's secrets that they have to guard basically but okay um which i'm like that's fine i i respect secret societies in a <laughs> to a certain degree um i don't that's know so I think cool. I'm just, huh as I said, I'm sorry. I just said that that's so cool. Like, I, I love that she was like, oh, I, I can share that with you. It's like, I'll bring you into the fold for just a moment. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. grandma, like, surprise, surprise the heck out of me. All right. Mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> she's never, I mean, she's never mentioned it or anything, but I do remember her when I was very little. She would always have me 
like memorizing. She would have me memorize Psalms, like Psalms 23. Um, and then she would also have me memorize John. Was it John 14? Um, and I, don't, I can't remember. It's one of it's one of the chapters in John. She would have me like memorize some of the verses when I was little, um, which I think back on that. It's, you know, the Lord's prayer. I mean, Psalms 23 is the Lord's prayer or no, wait, that's not the Lord's prayer. That's the, the Lord is my shepherd. The yes. Lord's prayer is our father. That's in the gospel. That's in the, yes. <laughs> the new Testament. Yes. Um, I had to re. I have to get, I'm like, I have to get my, my Bible stuff. Together <laughs> my, my head. Um, but you know, I, so I don't know when I, when I'm in, when I'm on in the land, whether it's the cemetery, the houses um, that I visit and like photograph or even just like photographing my family as we're just up there for like vacation, it just always feels very special. And I'm very proud to be from this place or have a connection to this place. I'm very proud that my family has held this land for over a hundred and like 30 years in, in our family. Um, and I feel like, you know, black land ownership is something that's not talked about a lot. It's, it's always talked about in relationship to there's, you know, those certain tropes, not, I hate to call them tropes. And I I say tropes for lack of a better word, but there's certain like highlights in the African-American story in the U S where we talk about like 40 acres and a mule, right. That kind of thing of what was promised after emancipation and for a lot of people that did not happen. Um, but for some people, they did inherit land and it wasn't that the government gave it to them. They inherited it because of their, their owners also possibly being their family, which is real messy. Yes. Because, <laughs> uh, as I was talking about, you know, the cemetery earlier and seeing all of these like surnames. So my grandfather's, um, my great grandfather's last name is Lusk, L-U-S-K, which is not a very common last name um and in the cemetery in hopewell is a bunch of people lusk last name but there are also a bunch of people last name lusk in the white cemetery throughout the the, throughout throughout the county and so and i remember asking my grandma i was like are these people related she was like no and she just kind of like left it she goes yeah that's questionable grandma that's questionable (laughs) It's, it's very questionable. Like, I mean, maybe they're not all related, but there, there's, there's this potential that they are. Like, cause, you know, people think about I, we we see the movies like Twelve Years a Slave or um, I don't know why I'm thinking about Django Unchained. That's such it's such a, it's such a dramatic, <laughs> dramatic. I'm sorry, oh, no, Quentin Tarantino's version of a slave plantation. It was excessive. It was excessive. It's, it's, it's a lot. Um, but you know the Hollywood um, films about slavery it's always a major plantation which is like a huge corporation really like this huge factory of people working like hundreds of people working on this plantation to grow tobacco cotton indigo whatever it may have been but a lot of times there were smaller farms and you maybe these people could not afford to have a hundred people enslaved to them right maybe they had like five and like one is the chauffeur like one drives the like the little buggy one is the housekeeper and cook the other 
does all of the like gardening or not I, I say guard gardening sounds very like fun. right like cavalier but no I know yeah. what you mean so all of the like manual labor of like the upkeep of a homestead you know like it's more we don't really get to see all of those kinds of narratives we saw it in roots though I will say that and I, I'm appreciative of Alex Haley for that because we did see it in in roots because after Kizzy is born, Kizzy is sold to a, like this man who only owns her really. And like one other person. And he's like trying, and that white man, that white man was like trying to, like, he's like a working class white person trying to mimic this wealthy plantation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, and then like Kizzy has George and like George don't know who his daddy is, but it's like staring at him. Play it in the face that this <laughs> man that owns you is your daddy, you know, kind of thing. Right. Um, but you know, t- tying that back to land ownership, like there's, you know, there's there was a lot of those like little farms here and there, and you know, people, I'm 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 sure, like that's how a lot of people got the land that they're on because mm-hmm. there's there was some white person, some white family member, some white grandfather somewhere that was like. Y'all can have it. Yeah. So like they or they didn't have any other kids. Exactly. Than, yeah. And exactly. That rightful heirship just naturally descends to them. Yeah. And it's 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 an interesting thing that doesn't really there's a lot of like I think academics who talk about it, but in Hollywood, no. It's that's not something right. we're gonna um we're gonna see. Which is unfortunate because people treat mass media, like the media that comes out of Hollywood and things, as an educational thing. Mm -hmm. Like, if it's in a movie, I mean, there are people, of course, like, oh, it's a movie, it's not real. But if you, as soon as you put based on a true story or based on true events, like, that becomes... now being digested as, like, a documentary. Yes, or something you, more real, you, yes. You know, and and this is it's really important to note that because I so I teach a class called performance and video art at my university, and I had a debate with students about whether or not Selma, the movie by Ava DuVernay, was a documentary or not. The student mm-hmm. was telling me it was a documentary, and I was like. You mean the motion picture, Selma? And she was like, yes. I was like, no. No. Because <laughs> no. we were talking about documentary that day in class and like, what's, what, what, you know, like, what is it? How do you know you're watching a documentary versus like a movie? Like, how right. do you, where is the line? And right. she was, she was telling, and we had to like really kind of pull that apart. I understood what she was saying because these were true events that happened. Right. But, this is not, you know, like this is not actual. And she, and then also she was like, they used some of the actual footage from that day, from Bloody Sunday in the movie, which I haven't seen the movie, so I can't confirm or deny. People who are listening, you, you've seen it, maybe. Um, I feel like most people have seen it. I'm just relate to seeing things, but, <laughs> um, but you know, that was kind of part of her her argument. I was like, oh no. I was I was very concerned. I was like, "Oh no, girl, you can't be thinking oh, about this." Yeah, but I, I mean, think we, we got it together. I think we got it together. Yeah, <laughs> the end there. But 
Yeah. We we have to give our our not, not to throw our our Gen Z um, generation under the bus, but we we have to give them a little leeway sometimes, a little bit. Yeah. Just, uh, and you know, like part of that I think has to do with how we consume things now. Like, you know, I can listen to Earth, Wind, and Fire's album from like the nineteen seventies right now. The whole thing, like I can stream it right, and like I think streaming. <laughs> really kind of like fold it time in on itself, like collapse it. Like there's no, like their sense of like how long ago something was and like is a little like off. And I really do think it's because of the way technology works. We can access all these things at any given point in time. Right. You know? So it's, it's, it, I could see how it could be confusing, yes. you know, like, and I think for me as an educator, it's like trying to figure out, ways to kind of like get them to think about that time period or like wherever they are, you know, as any educator, wherever your students are, you have to meet them there and then walk them to where you want them to go. Right. But as you know, as we're so, I'm like, are we, we're off topic, but we're not off topic. No, we're always on topic. Don't (laughs) go there, Jamie. (laughs) We are always on. (laughs) We're always on like, primary source materials, understanding documentary and (laughs) that process. It's, it may be new for some people. So that's, that's perfectly okay. Like we are, we are always on topic. Um, (laughs) But I will, I will jump in a little bit and, and ask another question just because we were, we were just actually just mentioning time. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know, like, if you're still, if you're still in a creative process right mm. now with, with COVID mm. um, and has your professional practice been affected by the pandemic and, or is it, has it not really been changed at all? That's a really good question, especially cause you know, I, at the high, at, March 2020, I was in the last semester of my thesis, of of my MFA program. Um, And, you know, we went to spring break and we never went back to school. And, you know, we were gearing up for a thesis exhibition that didn't happen. And that certainly meant that I had to revamp how I was going to defend my thesis. Cause even though we're, you know, everything shifted to online immediately. Um, and it was very, it was kind of clunky at times, you know, you had professors maybe wanting to meet the entire three hour block um, that we would do in person on the computer. And it's just like, we can't do this girl. Like, no. Yeah. Um, but I had to think about, you know, how I was going to readapt my final thesis project, which ended up becoming a book. Um, titled Charting the Afroscape of Leon County, Texas. And I, you know, I was allotted a certain amount of space in the the in Blaffer Art, Art Museum, which is on the University of Houston's campus, um, which was kind of limiting in the sense that I really had to edit down what I was going to show, what was going to get across my vision as an artist in relationship to, you know, the other 12, 13, 14 people who are in this group thesis exhibition with me. Um, defending it, I decided to design a book. It was an, it kind of just went as like an, a PDF online mm-hmm. 
the digital version and sent it to my committee. My committee was responded extremely positive to it. And they were like, you should publish this. Um, and so I sought publishing for the book and that went really well. It sold out twice under Fifth Blow Press. And so, oh, I was, nice. you know, it, I, because I work in digital photography, my, you know, I don't have, I'm not a t- traditional studio practice kind of person where, you know, you're painting and making in the studio. I'm usually working in, on a computer or behind or out in the field photographing or, you know, like that's more what the practice looks like for me as a, as a lens-based um, artist. And so, you know, shifting to digital wasn't that big of a jump. It actually was like kind of less stressful because printing photographs is a whole beast of its own, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, gives me, you can just have so much anxiety, right? <laughs> you know, over printing. And usually that is because, you know, technology, I remember I had a, a, a coworker who used to always say with technology, it's Murphy's law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Yeah. So you have to really give yourself a lot of time with printing. Um, and so removing that step and just having them be digital images that live on people's screens um, was kind of nice and like really, it really relieved me yes. from the stress of um, having to print everything. And also I wasn't ready because I had kind of bitten off a little bit more than I could chew. I was, I was kind of in this place of like, I have all these shows lined up simultaneously with my thesis exhibition. So I was, I guess, trying to make, I guess, my debut into the arts in Houston. Like here, I'm over here, I'm over there. Like, you know, but it didn't really get to happen that way. Um, Which, you know, I, I'd have no, I don't know. One of my professors, she was more upset about it than I was. She was, she was, she called me and she was like, this is horrible. Like you just, you had so much work and you had so many like things lined up for you. And here comes COVID and just smashes yeah. it. All. Yeah. And I, you know, I chose, I was choosing not to dwell on that aspect of it. Cause I had mm-hmm. already had like a little, like mini breakdown prior to, yeah. prior to, because I was just so, there was just so much pressure. Right. And not enough time to print anything. And I have a really bad habit of not asking for help. Right. Uh, and so, you know, it just, it's just all caved in on me. And, you know, my professor is upset about this happening. And I'm just kind of thinking like, okay, what's next? I'm happy to be at home. Yeah. But I do need to finish, you know, finish this. Like I have to defend this thesis. And so, you know, it ended up, like I said, it ended up in a PDF that I shared publicly with people for a, a couple of months, and then it became an, a physical book. Um, and so I'm still looking for a, because Fifth Will Press is an independent press, I'm looking for a press that will, like, for posterity, keep the book in production. So I could, you know, it'd be nice to have, like, little royalty checks coming in every now and then. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That's what it is. <laughs> so I'm still like in the midst of looking for that. But in the meantime, I'm focused on trying to exhibit work. And like I said, once again, because my work is digital based, um, I did still have, a, I still had a couple of exhibitions in, during the pandemic. Um, you know, like some of the stuff was online, some of it um, was stuff that was in person, but then like, 
the galleries closed, so they figured out some kind of digital way to show the work. Um, you know, so it's I've, I feel like I've been adapting pretty well, excuse me, to the pandemic in a sense that because it really relied heavily on digital technology um, and my my, you know, that's kind of like my home base for my for my work. It, it really it didn't affect me as much as I as I think it would affected like my peers who are, you know, working in sculpture and painting and graphics and all that kind of stuff who were ready to, you know, put their work into the thesis show. Like it was, I'm sure like a huge blow to them. Cause now it's like, okay, now they got to photograph these things right. and slide, you know, and find some kind of way to like promote it and show it to their committees. But even like, you know, thinking about what is long-term, what are they going to do? Cause you know, they often talk about like how, the first two years out of your MFA program really kind of define whether or not like you're really going to, like you're really going to have the trajectory to be like an artist. And I was, I had that like kind of twinkling in the back of my mind that like I need to keep applying to things. I need to keep, you know, trying to get my work out into like more public spaces. And even just like beyond Houston, I think sometimes some artists, um, you know, we tend to focus maybe too much locally. There's so much opportunity right. across the United States and even internationally. Like I had, Absolutely. I showed my first uh, piece internationally in um, Exposure Photo Festival in Canada uh, in February. And like, if you would have asked me maybe like two years ago, would that have happened? I probably wouldn't have believed <laughs> believed you that it that it would have. I don't know. I don't think, I never really saw that happening for myself. I'm not someone, even though I have in the back of my mind that I need to keep applying to things and making work and all of that kind of stuff. I'm not someone who has like a very strict plan about what needs to happen. Yes. Like kind that's of- why you're surviving though, because you, you're not holding on to this limited, this limitation of having to be in physical spaces. Like right. You you've adapted, you're flexible and like you've, you've pivoted and you've used, you've like rode the wave of like the digital spaces to get your work out there, you know, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be, um, you know, an exhibition, even though I'm you know, trying to, I'm putting together an exhibition, like being on someone's blog and mm-hmm. being on, you know, being on podcasts like we're doing right now, like, staying digital and being digitally fluent and mm-hmm. not being dependent on the physical, not being dependent on physical space is definitely, definitely a useful tool. And you've just, you've just shown, you've proven that you can, you can do it without, without needing to be in a gallery. Yeah. Yeah. I did so many interviews, like, you know, where you send them your images, they send you a list of questions and you answer them. Um, artist talks this past spring, I was like a marathon <laughs> of artist talks. Um, it was, it was kind of wild. Cause they were all like, especially the one in Canada, cause they were on like a different time zone and it was like half, you know, like <laughs> navigating that kind of stuff was kind of like chaotic at times, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I got a lot of good practice about talking about my work and like, and the more you talk about your work, the more. I don't know, like it becomes, I don't know what, like the more I understand newer things about it, like it keeps, mm. not that it keeps changing, but it's like, 
my way of talking about it evolves each time because I look at it, I put the presentations together and I look at the work and start thinking about, you know, all these different things. Maybe I've been reading um, different books or ran across stuff that ignites a new way of looking at the work that I've already made. And that's really exciting to me. Like that still evolve, even, you know, the, my way of understanding my work can still evolve even though like in a way it's like, Oh, it's kind of finished, but not, I don't know. I feel like conceptually, conceptually it's almost never finished because it can intersect in so many different ways with either other artists or different narratives. And once you're, and that's, that's also what I think is so compelling about a group show is because Mm -hmm. you're, you're combining these, um, these concepts and, but they're, they're on they're two different finished works but when you bring them together you you provide an intersection that you as an artist probably wouldn't have seen but the curator gets an opportunity to see and like you know bring two artists together to to do something a little bit different and it may be slightly out of purpose for what you originally intended for the work but it still has a multi-level purpose now than what you originally intended yeah, I love good curation. I love, <laughs> I look, curators have like, I mean, it's everyone, everybody wants to be a curator because it's such a like, it feels like it's such a glamorous and like sexy job. And like, but there's a lot of work, a lot of like mental work that goes into like pairing all these people together and like trying to find a common thread between their works. Like, you know, and like, of course, there's always those kind of like default, um, Oh, the theme is 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 houses. We're gonna show everything about a house. You know, like <laughs> very you know, um, jurd membership or member kind of exhibition. We're like, let's look at all. You know, this is the theme, kind of things. Which those are fun too. But I really love when a curator has like a very clear vision for what they want. And like from talking with you, like it's been very clear about the direction you want black love now to go in and so that's been really exciting for me to you know to learn more about um but yeah it's I I I enjoy I like group shows I know like some people I like group shows a lot because I feel like they're also kind of less stressful for the artists too yes um but also it's just you get to meet new people and see how your work is you know relating to other people and also, I think it's a good barometer of what's happening in the arts and wherever you are. Like, what are right. people thinking? Like, this is where we are. Yes. Yes. Uh, and, um, the now. The the now of the Black Love now. Um, but yes, like getting, like you said, getting a good barometer on what's happening in this current moment. And it's uh, it's important and it's it's special to just kind of see um, kind of like the socially where we all are in mm-hmm. this particular moment. Um, what we're all thinking it's a a collective consciousness, like a thread mm-hmm. that we we kind of weave in and out of that we tap into while we're working, but we mm-hmm. don't see it until the work is all together. So yeah, it's. Yeah, it's it's really great to to have a group show for that reason specifically. Um, so I have 
have two more questions. I, I, I traditionally ask the another question, but you've, you've answered it like multiple times. Uh, and, and that, that question is, you know, has Texas as a site specific landscape informed your practice and how, and like your entire practice is on the land on, you know, Leon County, like it's mm-hmm. so specific and it's so, um, regionally specific um, to Texas and, you know, a a county, like down to the county, like it's, and um, it it informs your entire practice. Like you're, you're photographing there, you have grown up there, you have generations of your family. Um, So like love is tied in um, your, your, your ancestral past, your present, like your, um, your foundations come from there so it's you've literally answered it the the entirety of the question so there's no need to ask that one um but jumping into uh the next one um so there's there's a quote that i hinge this um exhibition on and it's the um james baldwin's um line from uh the fire next time he wrote an essay and it was a, a letter to his nephew and the, the quote is, um, if we had not loved each other, we would have never have survived. And so it makes me ask this question, what does Black love mean to you? Black love, Black love to me, and I think about it, I think about it more in regards to like the love for community Um, I know there's like a traditional kind of like people think about black love in regards to romantic um, heterosexual um, relationships. But for me, I really think about it, the love for black people and the love for our community and the acknowledgement of each other as human beings in this world that is constantly trying to tell us that we're not like we don't belong here or we we are somehow less than which is, of course, as we know, not true. you know, so, you know, things like when you're passing by another Black person, the head nod that you give each other, you don't even have to know each other, right? It's just that I see you and we're in this together kind of thing, right? Um, and sometimes it's even, I mean, the con- like the joy, like I think a lot about like Black joy too and how we, even though we are so oppressed by systems and people and you know things of that nature um we still have we still have the ability to laugh (laughs) and laugh at each other um and you know to make you know joy and comedy out of our pain and suffering which you know some people may feel like is inappropriate but I think that people you know you do you make the best of what you have and I think that that's what we have done. And the way that we've cared for one another, I think, even though, you know, of course, there are those instances where we don't always agree. Like I mentioned, like earlier at the start of the podcast, those diaspora war type things. Yes. Um, but I, in unison, I think about like those kind of like videos of like Howard homecoming, like everyone doing um, before I let go 
Maze featuring Tracy yeah. Beverly, doing the line dancing to that. Yes. Right. <laughs> one is- of these days. <laughs> you know, one of like- these days. <laughs> yes. You know, like it's a moment of pure love and joy for Blackness. And that's really what Black love is, to love Blackness and its wholeness and its completeness. Um, we, I mean, Black is socially constructed, right? But yes. we, and it was forced on us as a people, but we have adapted it into ourselves in a way that has given us purpose and drive and meaning. And I think that, you know, Black love really is us shaping ourselves in, in our own image and not what the world says we are. Like that, that is it's, so beautiful. <laughs> it's like a lot of love for self and for who you are to truly be like, this is who I am. And just to shape yourself in that and not try to be, you know, what you see or the stereotypes or, you know, like you are who you, who you are. Um, so yeah, I, I, that's, that's when I think of black love, I think of community. I think about the way we care for each other. And I think that about like our love for the fact that we are black and, you know, in spite of everything, we still love ourselves. So that is so perfect. Thank you so much, JV. And, and as you speak of community, where can we find you on socials? Yes. So you can follow me on Instagram, of course. Um, my Instagram handle is at her name is underscore Jamie, J-A-M-I-E. Um, so, so you can find me there. Of course, you can find me at my website where you can see more of my work, which is www.jamieb, like in Victor, robertson.com. Um, and that's, I mean, that's pretty much it. I mean, I if you're in the Texas, Southeast Texas area this fall, um, I definitely have some shows coming up and I'll announce them more on my social media. So definitely follow um, to keep up with me. I've been kind of like, I've been getting really lax with Instagram. Like I'm start, starting to get on my nerves a little bit, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, I try to keep people informed of what I'm, what I'm doing, where I'm showing and stuff like that. So um, definitely you can, you can follow me on Instagram for sure. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time and just sharing with our audience here, Jamie. We appreciate you and we love you so much. Thank you for having me, Scarlett. This was great. It's always so good to talk to you. <laughs> I I love it every single time. Like I don't know how many times we've had conversations, but every single time without fail, I am surprised. I learned something new and I love any conversation I can have with you. So happy, so happy to get to chat with you today. Me as well, yes. (laughs) 